we go. We're live. What's up, brother? Feliz cumpleaños. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, brother. Gracias. <laughs> so uh, what's, uh, what are you doing to celebrate today other than talking to me for uh, in the morning? What time is it uh, there? Uh, well, what time is it here? Yeah. It's just like Eastern time, same as New York. Okay. So it's then 10 a.m., yeah. Perfect. Uh, nothing. I'm just going to hang out with the family, you know, during the have a small Corona party. <laughs> <laughs> Are things, uh, what's the lockdown situation like there? Uh, we, we are still under a lockdown. And I've said this on other podcasts and other shows, John. It, it's basically because the Maduro regime will just continue leveraging the whole coronavirus thing. Uh, but for their own purposes, right? They're, they want to hide as much as possible from the U.S. Treasury and FinCEN and OFAC and, <laughs> and all of those guys. Yeah, well, it doesn't sound that much different than every other regime in the world, you know, using this to their optimal advantage. Totally, yeah. So, um, man, I've, uh, I've speaking of other podcasts, I've heard you on some other uh, shows. And I think I first heard you with Brady and then I listened to Princey recently. And uh, I just love the energy, man. It's, uh, you know, listening to those podcasts, I got a huge smile on my face the whole time, primarily because you're always laughing and smiling and, and so enthusiastic about this stuff. Thanks, man. Well, you know, we said it in the community and the ecosystem, Bitcoin is a pill, right? So when you take a pill, you got to be full of energy, man. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, you know, for those people that, and for my knowledge, actually, because I, I, I don't remember the origin story, but uh, why don't we just get that kicked off with how you got into this and what you're up to now, and then we'll just let it roll from there. Cool. So I got into Bitcoin. I started building my own Bitcoin rabbit hole story in 2011. Uh, when I first dived into Bitcoin on the internet, I was with some friends, uh, with a couple of friends at, at, a, at a friend's apartment. It was just an interesting thing. But then... Yeah. After that, I basically founded one of the biggest Bitcoin mining farms, like two, two, uh, two years later, uh, with a couple of friends as well. And there were people from Banesco, which is basically uh, one of the biggest banking entities from Venezuela. Uh, Banesco CTO was with us on, on that project. So that was pretty amazing. And then afterwards, I just started I, we continued mining for over two years and then we just sold the hardware and we sold the mining farm. At that time in 2015, it was starting to get a little bit hefty, the environment, if you, if you were mining. The government, you know, at first it was like, what are you doing, man? You're mining whatever mining is, this magical coin over the internet that's, worth, that's worthless. You were just a geek, so people... What it, I mean, you, you, you did not bother anyone whatsoever at that time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, after that, uh, I tried building uh, the first Venezuela and Bitcoin exchange with a couple of dudes. That was in 2016, almost 2017. Uh, I did not like the dudes uh, so much, their virtues and what they, what they were up to. Um, and so in 2017, I went to China, check out, check out the industry over there. Uh, frankly, I need to be honest, I don't know what the probability, the probability is of this happening, but my host in China both knew about Bitcoin and I spent a lot of time with them talking about Bitcoin, etc. You mean just randomly, like your Airbnb host knew about it? Airbnb host, correct. <laughs> Holy shit. That, yeah, that was in Shenzhen. 
um, Bitcoin's price was starting to skyrocket, right? Because it was 2016. It was the U.S. elections. Trump was just winning. And Bitcoin was mooning to $900 almost at the end of, of 2017. The bubble was just starting. And then I was trying to get out of my country, like go live abroad. But I just came back to Venezuela and I doubled down on Bitcoin. That's when in 2017, I started CoinSpring. And then eventually I, I became like the most unique advocate regarding Bitcoin full note and custodian solutions for LATAM in Venezuela. <laughs> right. Well, before we get into CoinSpring, what, because uh, I, I lived about almost 10 years in China, mostly in Shanghai and a little bit cool. in Beijing. So, and I know Shenzhen is kind of like the hardware capital of the world. And, you know, there's a lot going on down there in that domain. What was, how long were you there? And what, what was your experience like there? What'd you think? Well, I was there for 45 days. It was an awesome experience because five days before going to China, I didn't know where I was supposed to go. It was just, <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin helped me doing that, <laughs> by the way. So uh, totally, man. I mean, Shenzhen is awesome. I went to Huajian Bay, which is basically like one of the biggest hardware shopping malls of the globe. That was pretty interesting. Uh, I must say that, Look, in China, that was 2016. You could pay for bananas that, uh, to a guy that cultivated those bananas at his, ha at his house using WeChat. So you're already talking about digital payments, uh, ma massifying digital payments inside China. Mm -hmm. And we see this speaking up with Al Alipay and yeah, all of, those, all of those services that are being built right now in China. Big tech in China, man. I mean, Shenzhen is like the Silicon Valley of, of China, literally. Um, it was amazing. So many, so many people. So it, it, even the smell. I remember getting to Hong Kong. It was, I was like, what is the smell in the air? It's people's skin, man. I mean, it, they eat differently. They live differently. They're on the other side of the globe. Of course, you can expect th those kind of, kind of things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was it's a lifetime experience. It's, it's a, it's an amazing place. I mean, I know, you know, every, no place is free of criticism and China certainly has uh, a lot of uh, reason. There's certainly a lot of reasons to be critical of China, but just the scale uh, of activity that's there is like always stunning. And I've been there for a long time yeah. and I still would go to places like you just described and see the hustle and see the the scale of activity and you're just like oh my god and the thing that always fascinated me was you know you brought up uh, wechat and alipay like that stuff in 2015 was normal and the the interesting thing about it is in western markets or in, in developed countries let's say it seems or maybe everywhere else in the world it seems that when new technologies emerge the adoption curve is like way slower and longer, you know, certain demographics will be slow to catch on if they catch on at all, et cetera. But in China, literally like WePay is available and a month later, 99% of the population <laughs> uses it for yeah, daily man. transactions. Like the 90 year old lady selling carrots on the side of the road, accepts WeChat like a month after it's available. Like there's, there's not really any cash in, in China anymore. And it's been that way for a, yeah. a long time. Yeah because it's so easy to, to, to use WeChat and Alipay and it's so integrated into so many things. Um, but what was the reason why you went to China in the first place? 
Well, uh, my father had a autom an automation company, so he did like lighting projects throughout Latam, big projects for uh, banking entities and shopping malls, etc. So I was supposed to go there and, vis and visit like a bunch of hardware factories for us to develop our own hardware. It was very cool. I actually developed a light bulb that was connected to Alexa. And you told, you tell like Alexa said, I called it Jarvis, said Jarvis <laughs> blue, said Jarvis red, <laughs> said Jarvis green. That, that was amazing. Uh, but yeah, I visited like over 27 factories, I think. And when you were there, did you, did you like research much in the Bitcoin space or was it just like your host, you had some chat with them and you like, did you go visit miners and mine manufacturers and stuff like that? Not in, no, I did not. I would love to though. I yeah. do have a couple of friends from Venezuela that have done that, like visited Bitmain's factories in China and people who have imported like over $50 million in Bitcoin mining hardware into Venezuela. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, again, before we get into CoinSpeed, what, you know, obviously the, a lot is made uh, of the Maduro regime and, and what's been going on in Venezuela over the last number of years. What is the, like, how much do they crack down on Bitcoin and Bitcoin entrepreneurs? Like, it seems like they're kind of permitting the industry to exist in, in large part. What, what's the status of, you know, being able to work in and use Bitcoin in Venezuela? I mean, Paxful just left Venezuela, right? Because of the regulatory environment, et cetera. Right. If you're an international player and you're starting to penetrate the Venezuelan market, you will find bomb, bombs on the road, you know, like, and walls. Uh, the regulatory environment is not very friendly for international companies to start doing business inside Venezuela because you have to deal with Sudacrip, which is the, the cryptocurrency regulator inside Venezuela. And Sudacrip is sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. And so the guy who runs Sudacrip is also sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury. They have a $5 million bounty on his head. So uh, they, of course, they allow it because after you get sanctioned, I mean, in Venezuela, the country, by the way, it's not sanctioned. It, it's only some players of the Maduro regime which are being sanctioned. And the state oil company, PDVSA, which was also sanctioned because 80%, 90% of the Venezuelan economy runs on oil. So that's where they get the money from. After that happened, John, I mean, the, the, the regime has been mining Bitcoin for almost, I think, seven years. I mean, yeah, I can tell you that. Sure. So, so after they understood that they were unable to crack down on local Bitcoins Venezuela, <laughs> they, they said like, okay, how can we sort of draft a regulation that gives us some advantage and control over the ecosystem and not killing it, but allowing it to sort of efficiently flow, but that all also always allows us to understand and know uh, on the front, on front page, on the front row, what the hell is happening? Who is developing what inside Venezuela? Who is doing what with cryptocurrencies inside Venezuela? Who is El Sultan Bitcoin, for example? <laughs> and all of those kind of things, man. So, so it's, it's, it's just like in China, right? We were saying like at a technological standpoint in, in China, if you do something 
99%, uh, you get mass adoption at a 99% rate after a couple of months. And that's because every single thing that you do in China related to business, if it's big enough, you have to deal with a Chinese communist body mm -hmm. or someone from there. Yeah. It's the same thing in Venezuela. It's the same thing in Turkey. It's the same thing in Iran, right? All of this country. It's the same thing in Russia with the oligarchs and et cetera. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the regime knows that they have to allow entrepreneurs to continue building because uh, mostly what we are, you, we entrepreneurs, what we are using Bitcoin for is, is just a, as a back office tool to enable remittance, remittances services. So I can give you an example like Value Colombia. Value Colombia is uh, the biggest fintech that has been, been enabling remittances services back and forth uh, from Colombia to Venezuela. So all of these Venezuelans that are living in Colombia and have their families inside Venezuela, they can, they can use pay, Colombian pesos, send them to value. Value would give them some synthetic US dollars that are built with on top of uh, BitMEX, CFDs, services. And so on the back office, what they use is Bitcoin. They exchange these pesos for Bitcoins and then these Bitcoins for Bolivares inside local Bitcoins liquidate Bolivares inside uh, this Venezuelan people, uh, families, bank accounts inside the country. So will the Maduro regime crack on that? No, because they need us. They need us. They, they need organic volume not, not, that is not tied to their operations and their businesses, okay? For them to continue also using local Bitcoins because of course, of course the Maduro regime uses local Bitcoins, for example, and they used to use Paxful as well to grab the Bolivares and the credits that they emit inside the banking system with the public uh, banking entities that they control inside the economy. And so they create this new uh, credits in Bolivares, they grab this Bolivares, and every time Bitcoin melts down in price, they just issue no new Bolivares and buy more Bitcoin, more Bitcoin stash. <laughs> they have billions, man, billions of Bitcoin. That's a pretty sweet way to stack sets. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. So do you have to have direct involvement with the regime to do any of the things that you've done over the years and doing now? I know them. I'm not involved. I don't even want a license like they emit the, this licenses if you provide financial services regarding cryptocurrencies and digital assets. Okay. And that's why when uh, in 2017, when the, uh, when the regime started uh, inter in the introduction of the El Petro cryptocurrency, et cetera, you know, the national cryptocurrency that it's all over the Venezuelan regulation now. Uh, at Coinspree, we were like, okay, I told my team, like, we need to focus a lot on custodian solutions. Although we understood that there was the cash flow here in Venezuela, um, is inside, you know, arbitrage and remittances, people who want to buy and sell Bitcoin and uh, receive Bolivares inside their bank accounts. Some people, like, they're not comfortable enough at buying Bitcoin using local Bitcoins, for example. And some people, like, they're not comfortable enough as well yet at using international exchanges because international exchanges are cracking down on Venezuelans, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but that's why we focused a lot on custodian solutions and that allowed us to sort of operate under the radar. Right. Because, yeah. So, so they're aware of you. you, you kind of have, you know, a, approval to operate 
but there's no real cooperation. You guys just say, this is what we're doing. They say, okay, we'll let you do it. And that's it. Mm -hmm. That's it. They're like, okay, Alessandro, sounds cool. Keep building. <laughs> <laughs> so what, like, do you ever get, how much concern do you have that, you know, one day you just might get that phone call and be like, yo, Alessandro, shut it down. You know, it's, it's finished now or we're taking control of your ship because, you know, we'd rather have control than have you doing whatever the hell you're doing. Yeah, a lot, man. Okay. And I understand that because of that, Coinspree will just expand so much and so little inside Venezuela. But we are grabbing an important uh, part of uh, the industry here in Venezuela, very strategically. And then I can say this next year, I'm moving to Brazil, man, and to another side of the world because I'm getting married and I'll be expanding over hey, that. Hey, congratulations. <laughs> thanks, thanks, man. And I'm going to keep on building on that part of West Ham. Yeah. Right. So you, you're moving to Brazil um, next year. Awesome. So, well, you know, that's an, that was another question I had. What, you know, you, you are building this business, you're an entrepreneur, uh, you're excited about uh, everything that you're doing. Uh, what, is life like for you in Venezuela right now? I know it's different for many different people. Some people are, you know, have abject poverty. Other people are able to keep yeah. their head above water and all that kind of stuff. You know, what's, what's life for you right now? Uh, what's life for, like for you right now in Venezuela? I, I, I'm always thankful to God, man, every single day because I'm a, I'm a fortunate guy. That's just the reality. I'm one of these. I'm one of these entre Venezuelan entrepreneurs whose father built a massive wealth inside the country a bunch of years ago. Ago, like 20 years ago. So uh, I live in a bubble. That's a reality. I live in a bubble, man, and I know it. Uh, and that's just how Venezuela is. Like, if if you're me and you're on the top one percent, for example, or you're like the medium upper class citizen citizen type uh, uh, inside Venezuela. Uh, you just hang out with your friends and the people and the people you do business with under the radar, always from home to home, never showing yourself up too much. But I'm also very, very you, you got to be very patient because sometimes it might be just so slow. I mean, sometimes you won't even have electricity. Sometimes you won't even have internet. Sometimes you won't even have water. Sometimes you won't even have gas nowadays. So uh, that's how it's like, man. Okay. It's, it's, uh, and I think it's just a lifetime lesson for me. Okay. Three years ago, John, when I decided that I was going to stay here, that was not only because of Bitcoin or whatever. Yeah. I understood that I would have an advantage of that sense, but in that sense, but I wanted to stay here because this is my country. This is what's happening in my country. And it, if I am not seeing it, who is going to see it for me? No one. So I just saw it like as a, as a lifetime call, you know? Mm -hmm. And so what's the motivation behind the move to Brazil? I'm getting married. <laughs> and and of course... To, to a Brazilian? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, the open banking regulations inside Brazil because yeah. that is very fintech and cryptocurrency friendly. That, that is what has allowed the, the birth of over 400 fintech firms inside Brazil. And you know, before that, the banking and finance sector inside Brazil was only controlled, like 87% of it controlled by the, uh, the, 
the biggest, uh, the four biggest banks inside Brazil. So it is getting more decentralized. I mean, basically you can be a fintech inside Brazil and you will, you can, you can uh, create your own branch or company for like $3,000 if you know the right people and you can start emitting credit online without having uh, to resort back to a banking institution or, or you won't even need a banking partner to issue credit to consumers inside Brazil. Wow. So it's very, yeah, it's very interesting. They also have a, a method of payment that is called the boleto bancario, which is like the banking ticket. So uh, you, you can receive uh, reais, okay, which is the Brazilian local currency, without even having a, like a people, people sending you money directly to your account. So people would pay for that boleto bancario at throughout like, I think 48,000 supermarkets and pharmacy inside Brazil. And you can pay a boleto bancario on your online bank account inside any online bank account inside Brazil. So that's, that's huge for online payments. And I see that as huge for migrating Brazilians into Bitcoin as well. There are not, I think there's only one company inside Brazil that, uh, that lets you pay, pay and buy Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, pay for Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin using Boleto Bancario. And I do plan on like penetrating that side. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So just to finish off on kind of what life is like in Venezuela, you know, a lot is made right now of how the, you know, wealth gap is uh, affecting people in, in, say, countries like the US, right, where all this, you know, central bank monetary policy is going basically to financial assets and life is becoming more expensive for those that don't have the ability to protect their wealth. Is, is the same sort of dynamic exists, in, does the same sort of dynamic exist in Venezuela, but just kind of has had more time to develop and that people with wealth have been able to, you know, protect it, put it offshore, you know, put it in assets that help protect it. And, you know, the people that don't, ha don't have that ability have suffered the most. And this is where you get this kind of bifurcation. As you said, you kind of, you have to live in a bubble because your, what the lifestyle you're able to live is so different than, you know, the majority. Yes. And frankly, John, look, on this side of the world, we suffer from theft and capital flights since the 1400s since this side of the world was discovered by, mm. by Christopher uh, Columbus. So uh, it's always been like that. Be it with rum, gold, dollars, bolivares, art, oil, whatever it might be, man. So uh, yes, definitely, definitely you see a huge wealth gap inside Venezuela. I mean, there are bankers. There, there are bankers here that were not even bankers 25 years ago that don't no longer live inside Venezuela, but that strategically understood the period that, I mean, that part of history of Venezuelan history that was starting to go down the inflationary road, accelerating eventually into the hyperinflationary road. And so when that happens, huge wealth, wealth transfer processes occur inside a nation, right? Mm. There's people like, for example, Juan Carlos Escotet. Juan Carlos Escotet did not have Banesco 30 years ago. And now he has even bank, a banking institution in Panama, United States, Puerto Rico, 
Spain, Switzerland, and he has over $5 billion in assets. So there was a boom, a, 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 an outrageous boom inside the Venezuelan economy, especially with oil booming around the $120 threshold at that time, you know? And yeah, you do see, uh, I mean, because the Bolivar is now broke, you know, like the, the Venezuelan stock market is very small, but people and baby boomers specifically who invest in, in the Venezuelan stock market, they live, man, like they're kings inside Venezuela and, and they don't care about what's happening here. I mean, maybe because of coronavirus, for example, specifically, they do care because they can't travel abroad. But people that make money inside Venezuela, they travel back and forth inside and out of the country. They do business internationally, not only inside Venezuela. I mean, look at my business partner, man. My business partner is Swiss and he has imported, exported a bunch of things in, uh, for inside and outside of Venezuela without even being here. <laughs> and and that's just you just have so many stories that way with Turks and Venezuelans and Iranian people and Russians and Chinese doing business inside Venezuela. Who knows about this globally? Mm. Nobody, man. Nobody. I mean, it's media is so controlled inside Venezuela. Information will never flow efficiently outside of my country until Maduro regime is it's it's broken down, man, into mm. pieces. But you, yeah, you were saying that you know people like that when they notice you know, when inflation turned into like a lot of inflation and then hyperinflation, they acted and they left or, you know, they did things necessary to protect themselves. You know, you have such a unique perspective having grown up in that environment. I'm wondering what kind of insights or commentary you might have on what's currently going on. And let's say the Western world, but let's use the U.S. as a microcosm for that uh, with both economically and socially specifically in terms of like telltale signs that you may have seen before in obviously mm -hmm. on a smaller scale in Venezuela, but like, because I think a lot of, I think about this a lot, you know, whether it's early, you know, Nazi Germany era or whether it's early kind of um, socialist revolutions in the Soviet union and China and Cambodia, et cetera. Like it, it's hard to convince yourself or allow yourself to believe that things are going to get, that bad. And I think, let's say that people have the ability to leave. Uh, the reason why I think oftentimes they don't is because they just think, oh, it's, it's, it's a little bad now, but it'll go back to being normal shortly, or it won't ever get that bad. And then we have all these examples in history where it just ends up getting that bad. And by the time you realize how bad it is, you can't do anything about it. You can't leave, you're stuck, et cetera. And so, um, I see, I think we all see a lot of worrying signs around the world today, to say the least, but I'm wondering uh, what you see happening socially and economically uh, in the United States and how that compares to kind of the devolution of what happened in Venezuela. Did you watch The Big Short, the movie? Yeah. 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 Remember when, when Mark Baum was telling her wife, like, People just don't know. People don't care. People are watching TV. People are watching ads on TV. Yep. Well, today people are no longer, no longer watching TV. People are watching Netflix, which is kind of worse. But <laughs> <laughs> besides Bitcoiners inside the U.S., John, how many people inside the U.S. 
really understand what's happening regarding the money printing and the Fed and the monetary policies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very few, yeah. Very few, man. I mean, and what's the best way for us to make them understand it? I think it's just Bitcoin marketing, like continue building on, on the, what, this that we are doing right now. But yeah. look, I think it's not only a problem saying like, okay, there's money printing. That's not the only problem. The problem is where is the money that is being printed? Where is it going to? To whose pockets? And so the Fed now has a specific list of, of corporate debt that it buys. And you see Berkshire Hathaway, Walmart. And so those are the richest, the richest dudes and the richest families inside the U.S., and so that's what started happening in Venezuela when the money printing start, the money printing uh, yeah, when the money printer started uh, moving faster. Uh, only people that have huge businesses that are already structured, that have so many years inside the market, okay, inside the economy, like expanding, uh, they already have so, so, such, a, such a huge track record that those are the people that will start getting the, those subsidies from the government. Because frankly, when you print money and you give that amount of money to someone, that's subsidizing. You're subsidizing his business. Sure. And, you're, and you're killing other businesses while doing that, okay? You're forcing other people to change the way they live and what they do for a living based on how much these other parties are growing thanks to your inorganic inorganic subsidies. So that happened a lot inside Venezuela, okay? You had capital flight controls, right? You also have capital flight controls inside China and China has printed a bunch of money compared to their economy, okay, right? right. Um, and so I, I think that, that we'll continue building up on the US, John. That's, that's the thing, like very small groups that are already inside Wall Street are the ones that will continue to just get bigger and smaller and medium-sized firms will just continue to evaporate. Uh, because tech businesses inside the US specifically are getting so much subsidies, okay? And they're just, you know, like, are they really innovating or are they buying or are, are they just buying back shares? what they've been doing since 2008, mm -hmm. okay? And so that will take the US, I think, that's my perspective, down a road that it will be a more virtual reality world inside the US because everything will be more digital, even more digital, even payments, okay? And people will, will have to learn how to work remotely from home learn a code. Coding is the future. I mean, uh, and I don't know, man, I, I look, so many people will suffer and I, and it's just such a different perspective, right? It's the number one economy in the world we're talking about right now. The milkshake effect effect is a reality. I mean, I, I, it hurts more other countries when the U S prints money than the U S itself. So that gives you an advantage, a sort of advantage, but is it, is it being used wisely? I don't think so. 
if you if you hear the perspective and the opinions of the Bitcoin US ecosystem, <laughs> I, I don't think you're so happy about what the Fed is doing. <laughs> and I, 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 it went through me what you said, dude, dad. Eventually you see that it's getting worse, it's getting bad, but when it, when it gets to a point that you realize that it's so bad that you can't do anything about it, I think the US is already at that point, okay? We are already at that point with the US economy. It will be interesting to see how it how it end and ends up playing out, man. Okay, because I'm not Houdini. Okay, right, but right. but but when, but yeah. When this I, process, expect, ex, I'm sorry. Expect centralization inside the U.S. Sure. to be. Yeah. In, in Venezuela, when this process first was underway, and you may be, you may have been a little young to be kind of fully uh, tuned into it all, but yeah. what uh, like socially speaking. And comparing to what's happening socially in the United States today with all of this unrest centered around, you know, more things becoming free, wanting more government handouts, wanting the government to step in in people's lives more and more and more and more. Were the same sort of demands uh, arising as things were unraveling economically and from a monetary and currency perspective in Venezuela as they are now in the United States? Like, is that kind of just the same dynamic playing out? I see it that way, John. I see it like literally the same. So I, I'm seeing the same steps that Venezuela made inside, inside the U.S. And so this might sound crazy, but I, I joke with some friends and some people I know very closely with this. I'd say, I, I've said before, like Hugo Chavez at its time, the dude read so much that he saw that developed economies had the control over the global system, thanks to the banking, legacy banking and finance system. And if, and if that system is based out of fiat and you are depreciating fiat, okay, since the 1930s, okay, Chavez said like, okay, Venezuela will never be able to do anything about it. And eventually every single nation in the world will start going down that road because the system is not controlled by governments. It's controlled by like 150 people that we don't know who they are. And so I will have to destroy the Venezuelan Bolivar for Venezuela to be one of the first countries on the in the globe to experience hyperinflation. So when other countries start experiencing hyperinflation, Venezuela will already, will already be done with it. Is that true? I don't know, but look, inside the Venezuelan economy, we have $2.4 billion in US banknotes alone, like physical banknotes, right? But the whole banking and finance sector is valued at $800 million. So <laughs> uh, we are already dollarized. And so I think that- Did you say 800 million? 800 million, yeah. That's so, nothing. 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 Like literally one dude in the US could buy <laughs> all of the banking and finance sector from Venezuela, man. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. So yeah, man, I think that I, I do think that we are sort of equipped as Venezuelans for understanding like how you have to cope with life if things get very rough because your currency is worth nothing. You understand that you have to survive and you have to become this sort of human being that is 
open to doing anything for a living, okay? Uh, but yeah, that's, that, that's basically what I joke with that. Chavez destroyed the Bolivar because he saw the European Union, he saw the IMF, he saw the Fed, he saw what the Chinese were doing. He started doing business with Putin and the Chinese and, and the dude that is ruling over there in Iran. And so he just created this massive conflict of interests inside the country, allowing every single, like all of these different peers, big peers in the global economy to do business with Venezuela using the Bolivar, detaching the Bolivar from the global banking and finance system and just destroying the Bolivar to eventually build on top of another standard. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that, that that dude, before he died, he was fully aware of Bitcoin, man. You can be totally sure of that, John. Because, I mean, yeah. That'd be some yeah. 4D chess right there. Um, <laughs> you, I've heard you say before that it's, it would be especially be 4D chess, chess if they've been using all that paper fiat to actually buy Bitcoin. And I've heard you say that where Venezuela is at in their kind of monetary history right now, you, I don't, I'm not sure if you were serious or you were joking where you're at with it, but you said like, it's certainly a possibility that, that Venezuela will be the first hyper Bitcoinized country because maybe out of necessity more than anything. Tell me more about your thoughts on that. So that's pretty much related to what I was just saying. Like this guy's destroyed the, the national currency trying to build another standard and they failed so much at building their other standards that now the only thing that you have that they did not build but that it's being used globally is bitcoin man okay and that is going nowhere and that, that they already adopted so i do think that venezuela will be the first uh country to go to go down the road of hyper bitcoinization i i'm 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 sure of that if, if we're not there already because that also depends on how we define hyper bitcoinization correct Mm -hmm. But if you see the reports from chain analysis, Venezuela is sometimes the country that at a peer-to-peer -peer level transacts the most with Bitcoin, sometimes bigger than Ru volumes bigger than Russia's volume. So that's huge. That's yep. huge, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that is indeed related to hyperinflation and having to sort of revert to a different option. Like It's like, look at me. I don't even have one Bolivar inside my bank account, man. <laughs> <laughs> what do you What do you use to get by? US? Well, yeah, man. Like people, as I was saying, you have two point four billion dollar banknotes of just banknotes inside the economy, and that's like three times bigger the valuation of the whole banking and finance sector. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, and then of course I use Bitcoin, man. I'm I'm like. 100% of my savings are in Bitcoin. And if I might need Bolivars, I would use local Bitcoins. And it's some, I mean, you don't see people paying in Bitcoin just as you won't see, like maybe you have people in Switzerland, right? That have a bigger Bitcoin stash than a Venezuelan uh, average Bitcoin stash, right? Mm. Do they pay with Bitcoin? No, they see it as a long-term storage value, you know? Storage, storage Matthew for, you know, like they, 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 they bet on the long-term bet value of Bitcoin, et cetera. Uh, 
some people don't care in Venezuela because they're not very well financially educated. We are not a financially well-educated country at a per capita level, although we have some bright minds regarding eco economics and finance, right? Even at Harvard. Uh, but yeah, man, that, that's what I use. It's, it's th this side of the world, John, craves for dollars, man. It craves mm. for dollars. Yeah. The milkshake effect. For sure. You know, it's interesting. We were talking about kind of like people that see the writing on the wall early and with the means in, in, in past periods, they were able, and you mentioned like if they were in, in business or whatever, they were able to kind of get assets outside of the troubled country and then, you know, maybe even move themselves out. So, this, you know, China, Germany, Soviet Union, Venezuela, there's many examples. Um, and, you know, I, what's so fascinating about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin Give, democratizes that process for everybody, right? It says, like, now everybody can opt out and now everybody can preserve the value of their assets. And that's really, really amazing. And I think that's part of the reason why we're here. But you mentioned kind of um, like a virtual reality sort of world coming up. And I'm, I'm only bringing this up because I've been, you know, occasionally I think about kind of like a Ready Player One scenario, right? Where, <laughs> where the, 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 like the physical world is still under the dominion of like power laws effectively. And so power reigns there. And the, the, the bifurcation of, of wealth disparity continues to grow. So you get a very small group of people with a lot of the physical wealth. You get a lot of people you know, with very little wealth and their, their, their physical surroundings reflect that. And it looks pretty drab. You, know, you get shanty towns, you get favelas and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but in the virtual world, and this is already the case, I mean, look, you could, you, you could roll up on somebody's house in a really poor neighborhood. The house looks, house looks like shit. They've got like no furniture in it, but they're on social media playing video games and, and doing whatever for many hours of the day. And in that world, they're wealthy. They're a superhero. They're uh, whatever they want to be. But when they unplug, man, life sucks. They can barely eat. Their surroundings are just terrible and gray and uncomfortable. And so it seems only natural to assume that because one of those domains is so much more attractive and engaging and enticing and enjoyable than the other, that more activity will move there, especially in an environment where the disparity between the two becomes even more uh, pronounced, right? Where the physical world becomes less enjoyable and the digital becomes more so. So like, I don't really have a question here, but do you think we kind of, what I'm hoping is that the way in which the, the impact of Bitcoin will have on the world may start to hopefully reverse that process. And so hopefully we can all have a physical world and, uh, and physical surroundings that are healthy and vibrant and exuberant and enjoy, uh, in, enjoyable, as well as the option for those, you know, fantastic virtual worlds. Um, and I, th I think I probably lean that way, but do you think we go into a direction where, you know, the, the good reality where there's freedom for people to choose is a virtual one and the oppressive one is what dominates in the physical world. Totally, man. And look, 99% of the globe of global money is digital, but only 1% of, of global credits are issued online. What the heck is that? <laughs> I mean, if you can, if you can have access to credit, you can build wealth, right? Mm -hmm. in a world where it's structured on top of credit, literally. So I think that I, 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 it resonates a lot what you're saying to me. Excellent example, by the way, John. 
thank you very much for it, <laughs> really. <laughs> uh, but we also have to think like, will will we will we continue building an an important part an important part of the global monetary system and the global banking and finance sector whatever globally in the virtual realm i think yes because bitcoin is best at that okay and and in that world you won't need licenses right you won't need licenses no no uh bit license from new york no sooner crypt license from Venezuela. So it's look, although if, if we talk like, for example, cryptocurrencies, right? Although they're Bitcoin. Okay. I don't want I don't, I don't even want to say cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin yeah. is so powerful already at a technological standpoint, but regulations still can come on top of Bitcoin and sort of not stop what Bitcoin will continue building, but you know, like it, it bifurcates, it bifurcates the road for Bitcoin. And so it makes the road for us longer. And so it gives advantage to governments and financial institutions to grab their, their piece of, of the cake, right? And, and try to control it as much as possible. Um, so I do, I, do, I do think, John, that in the virtual realm, we will have more sound policies for credit issuance, savings, you know, like uh, also look at Minecraft. People love what they built inside Minecraft, man. Okay. Eventually land will be sold inside Minecraft. What will you use to buy that? Dollars? I don't think so. <laughs> I, th I think you will use Bitcoin or an altcoin or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or a crypto. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, I do have a vision of the world that uh, uh, leans a lot on what you just said. Like we will see a de detachment from the, from the physical world and the virtual realm. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just see what Zuckerberg ends up doing with Oculus Rift, man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, hopefully he's not in charge of the limitations of such a virtual world, because I think the appeal, right, is that there's far fewer limitations, like there's far fewer restrictions. And so people that desire greater freedom may gravitate there because you can transact more freely, you can experience more freely, you can, you know, you can do things undercover more, and that allows you more options to, to do the things that you want to do, whereas the real world is increasingly restrictive. I mean, now we've had in terms of the flows of capital and what you can do with it and how you have to report it. But this year it's been, you know, blatantly obvious that restriction in the very physical sense of you cannot go to here, you know, you have to stay in this place. So if you've got one that's like increasingly restrictive and one whose freedom and lack of restriction becomes increasingly more appealing, then presumably a lot more activity is going to shift there. And I think that might be part of the reason why so many Bitcoiners kind of yearn for the simple life in the physical realm. Like, you know, you want to live in a, a rural environment, you want to, you know, have your own food and energy source, you know, you don't want to have like all this lavish goods and Lambos and stuff. You, you just want a simple life with people you love in a, in a yeah. healthy environment and to treat your body well. And I think part of that is that like lack of complexity in the physical realm is now um, maybe the best approach because there's so many restrictions on on so much behavior that complexity will just invite more restrictions and oppression. 
and, and you know, and so to try to establish, to try to minimize the degree to which you even kind of want complexity in the physical world and then kind of get those kicks in the, in the digital world and, and move as much activity as you possibly can to the digital world to preserve your kind of sense of freedom seems to be a, you know, a trend that will probably continue. I agree, man. But then we also have to think like, okay, how, how accessible is it for people globally to revert to that virtual reality world? I, I don't know. Cause like, for example, in, in look, look in this side of the world. Yeah. Can, can, like, can people buy a Raspberry Pi and run a full node there and just sort of try to tweak on that just for, to play and understand it and then eventually feel so comfortable with it that you eventually deposit some Bitcoins there, et cetera. How accessible is it for, it's, it's not accessible, man. I, I mean, people can't even run their, their full nodes in this side of the world because their savings won't allow them to. So it's like, are, are governments sort of winning? I think so. I think so. I think governments are winning totally, man, because uh, because of their policies, their regulations, this this well walls that they've built for us, they've made. I mean, so many people are today unable to enjoy. I, I I think enjoy that. I think that new trend that is being built on top of the internet, right? Because so many people just get stuck with like Instagram and Facebook. And then that's it, man. And then that's 24-7 what they do on their phone. Maybe they will play something, okay? I, I agree, but will eventually games become really a virtual reality? I don't, I, I don't know, man. We, we'll, have to, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Right. Uh, and if it's not Zuckerberg, maybe it'll be Sony with a PlayStation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we shall see. It does, it does seem that, that that screen, whether it's games or social media, it's just the screen is becoming closer and closer to our faces. And I think at some point integration is inevitable. But anyways, that's, that's probably a conversation for another time. Um, tell me what's going on with CoinSpree, uh, finally. <laughs> cool. So I'm, I'm going to open, I'm going to, I'm going to like talk m more openly than on other shows now. Let's I'm gonna do it, baby. E I'm going to even mention names. So look, with CoinSpree for the past three years, I've been approaching Banesco, Banco Venezolana de Credito, Ban Caribe, Banco de Venezuela, Banco Exterior, and Ban Plus as well. All of these different banking entities from the banking and finance sector letting them know that CoinSpree is the only Bitcoin firm inside Venezuela, well, at least with operations inside Venezuela, that will be able to offer them a custodian solution, an institutional custodian solution, running their own Bitcoin full nodes, allowing them to build a multi-sig, et cetera. And so, for instance, I with te with tested with on-chain capital and Spectre DIY, okay, which are very uh, user-friendly interfaces, right? Uh, and our, and our, I think like the best two options in the industry together with Lily, right. At, at building multi-signature standards, open multi-signature standards, which is important. Uh, and why they want to, and one day, and why they want to eventually go down that path, like having their own custodian solutions and build new financial products and services on top of, on top of Bitcoin. Cause 
uh, I, I, I discussed it with Vlad on the, uh, on the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. Like, how can we, John, provide exposure to Bitcoin to a teenager who is living inside a favela inside Venezuela? I mean, probably it will first be attaching his, uh, his uh, uh, banking account, right? His bank account uh, in Bolivares to direct Bitcoin exposure. And the only way to do that is if, you, if, is, is if that banking entity has a way to deposit Bitcoins for itself and, and, and show those Bitcoins inside their balance sheet, okay? And also provide like exchange services, eventually becoming a crypto bank, okay? For the clientele. So look at Kraken. Kraken is the first crypto bank from the US, I think, Globally, we will see this trend happening that you will see some banking institutions being repe repealed or going bankrupt. And the ones that are capable enough to continue building and innovating and like adapting to change will transition into crypto banks. So I think that banks are going nowhere, okay? They're just gonna be there. And we have to learn as Bitcoiners because it's us that we have, we have the knowledge. They don't have the knowledge, okay? But to build a, or a more sound ecosystem, I think that we have to sort of drop the whole thing that we wanna kill the banking system. <laughs> we, wanted a, we want the banking system to go away. I think we have to work with bankers when we have to very intelligently find a way to do that. And so that's what I've been doing with CoinSpray. Is it the right time for, the, for banking entities to uh, adopt their own custodian solutions inside Venezuela. And maybe like what I've proposed to them, having a signing key inside Venezuela and then another signing key at Puerto Rico inside one of their Puerto Rico branches, right? Uh, for a two of three, a multi-six setup where Coinspree could potentially have a backup key or they could even have a backup key themselves, having all of the keys by themselves, right? Um, it's not the right timing. Like the, you know, like it's like they don't have like a million dollars, for example, to spare it apart, to deposit into Bitcoin and then build with Coinspring a two of three, two of a, a, a sorry, a three of four multi-signature setup, uh, in which uh, Knox Custody in Canada might have two keys in Canada insured, okay, and then have the whole setup insured for up to one hundred million dollars. Uh, it's just not the right timing and, and it's because of regulations as well. But I built this image already inside my country that Alessandro Cecchio with Coinspree and also Time Bitcoin is like the best expert at this inside Venezuela. So eventually if they wanna do this, they will have to hit me up. I think that Casa will be unable to do so, <laughs> for example, <laughs> for example. Uh, and that's, that's the advantage that I'm building at, man. Um, only fintechs, okay? Only fintechs. Like, for example, I have a commercial partner, Bancumbre. I also tweeted, th tweet, tweeted this. And Bancumbre is the only firm together with Coinspree uh, that is using multi-sig uh, based on the Caravan protocol by on-chain capital. So they have, like a, a, they have a, a treasury stash of over 10 Bitcoins 
and before they were using exchanges to deposit those bitcoins now they are using pandora box as their bitcoin full nodes to broadcast the transactions and verify the transactions over the blockchain and uh they're they're using uh treasures and bitbox hardware wallets that we provided them with and now they have like a two of three multi-sig setup and with the, in which they have deposited those 10 bitcoins that's pretty cool i made it i made it to at least one firm gain exposure to multi-sig technology inside venezuela <laughs> so so coinspree's main kind of uh business model is you're doing you're providing custody services, solutions, consultancy, plus the Pandora box is the full node that, you know, you, you sell to people that are, are using those solutions. And I guess anyone else who wants to use a full node. Yeah, man. And then I also, at a personal level, like I assist people with escrows, like I call it Pandora box escrow. <laughs> and, and so I help people at buy and sell Bitcoin, even people that have never been in a Bitcoin. And then uh, I earn a fee from that. Okay. And right. so that's, that's mostly where I get the cash flow. Right. And, and, and the biggest gross margins. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what's your, ambition for your for this company for your role in bitcoin like what are you aspiring to achieve here so like uh, look at look at voila in argentina right voila uh, when, one of the biggest fintechs from latam they started with a banking partner and then eventually they they started providing uh debit cards uh, prepaid cards uh to people inside argentina and latam uh, and those prepared cards are attached to just one app, right? So what is it that I want to nail with CoinSpree, John, and, uh, and Pandora Box, and the whole knowledge that I now have? And of course, the image of El Sultan Bitcoin. I want to eventually be able to like commercialize our services to a big, or, or at least a medium-sized uh, banking institution from LATAM. Because eventually, I will be the guy that will help them out, structure them, themselves as an exchange. And so, you know, go down, full down the Bitcoin and, and digital assets path, which I think that if you're, an, if you're a financial institution and you are not already building on top of that, you're going to get pretty burned over the next five to 10 years. Okay. Uh, and so that's what I is aspire as at, like, at least at, at an stoic level, like at least one banking partner, because if you hit one ideal banking partner, you go boom. And then of course, I'm eventually, I will never leave at a 100% level, John, the Venezuelan ecosystem. Like I structured everything in a way that even if I left, even if I already left Venezuela, I will continue monetizing all of the image that it built inside the ecosystem uh, from Brazil or Switzerland, whatever. Uh, because you know, Coinspree is legally uh, based in Switzerland. That also gives me a lot of advantage because when you approach people inside Latam and you tell me like, no, I have a Swiss legally based company. It's like, oh, okay, this is glass bar. This is not a scammer. <laughs> <laughs> This is not a Bitcoin scammer. <laughs> right, so, right. so uh, yeah, man, basically that's it. And look, uh, I, I discussed it uh, with Corey 
on a private Zoom meeting. Corey from Swan Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, it, it was Corey, me, and my Swiss angel. Uh, look, uh, if you wanted to found a bank inside Spain, for example, the minimum share capital that you have to register and pay, if it's 50 million euros. But inside Venezuela, it's only like $80,000. You need $80,000 and 10 people. The hardest thing to find inside Venezuela is those 10 people, not the $80,000. <laughs> 10 government people, you mean? Not 10 government people. It, might, it, it can be you, me, Corey. Why is, that, why is that hard to find? Trustworthy people. Oh. Okay, but I am betting on that. I'm betting on the Venezuelan jurisdictional uh, environment as a very favorable one to found a fintech that can eventually become into, I mean, you can found your fintech in Colombia or, or on, on other side of, of the world, okay? And then eventually, when the, time is, when the timing is right, Venezuela will be one of the best countries in the world, man, to found your own bank. And I wanna better that because I wanna build my own crypto bank. As much as I wanna keep on building on the decentralized part of Bitcoin, that I think it, it first needs to be built at an educational level before, and it'll be that before at a technological level, right? Because the technological gap is very huge mm. for most of the globe right now. I do want to continue building on like, I love the banking and finance uh, ecosystem specifically. And I want to continue building on this vision that the world will eventually be built like on top of crypto banks. And then of course, people that already have the enough knowledge and savings to be decentralized for themselves. So two questions on that. One, if it's only 80, I mean, not that 80 grand is not a lot of money, but presumably, you know, you could put it together um, and 10 trustworthy people. How come you haven't tried to, start your own bank already. And the second question about that is, you know, talking about, like, I think Bitcoin is a Trojan horse any way you slice it. So I don't think it matters really the level of legacy system integration that happens and how people might be uh, like uh, resistant to that. Because I think by hook or by crook, this thing melts everything. So if, yeah. if you've got to get it involved in some, you know, le typical legacy structures first in order to make it more palatable to some people and maybe even make it more uh, accommodative or usable to some people in the interim period. I don't have a really big problem with that. What do you think banking and finance and credit and, you know, those things that you just mentioned you're interested in, what do you think they look like under a, a Bitcoin denominated world? Well, uh, there's an interesting level of that, which is the the institutionalization of uh, Bitcoin on their paper, right? So like Bitcoin ETFs, uh, you know, like uh, uh, a lot of financial products structure on top of Bitcoin, like uh, der derivatives. Like right now we have BitMEX and uh, Deribit uh, for, and they, they account for like the biggest market shares of the Bitcoin derivatives market. I think that will continue building a lot. like. The derivatives market of Bitcoin will be trillions, if not quid, quadrillions of dollars eventually, man, right? Uh, I see it that way. And then also like providing savings, Bitcoin savings accounts, 
to people. Like they're just there's just some people that feel more comfortable at you know using a, a user friendly platform and accessing their bitcoins via their phone, etc. I don't know how secure enough eventually like uh, non custodial wallets will be inside your phone, but you know like look at Casa's look at Casa's wallet. You could they advise you to deposit as much as a thousand dollars. I mean, eventually, maybe we will, yeah, we will see that like multi-sig wallets on your phone being built um, even more and more using your Bitbox hardware wallet or your Trezor, your Ledger, whatever. And people, some people will be, will be comfortable with that, like having a couple of devices spread around their own, like, I don't know, uh, safe houses, right? Or special places where, the, where they would hit that, those, those, those signing keys, right? Uh, but, but, but I think that it will, it will, it will be very interesting to see this financial institutions that look at, look at micro strategy, man. It's not a financial institution, but look how much they're betting into Bitcoin already. But the ones, yeah, from a financial institution side or in perspective, like the ones that accumulate Bitcoin the more. And so they will eventually become like this sort of this gold bug houses, but Bitcoin bug houses, right? That have so many Bitcoins under their stash and that they already built a so trustworthy image as a Bitcoin custodian company, correct? That that will allow them over the long term to like uh, continue translating into their, their balance sheets the, the, that Bitcoin exposure and just work on that and just provide assistance to very wealthy clients for their own Bitcoin stash and like family offices more that way. I think it will, it's, it's cool because when, when the world was structured under a gold economy, uh, gold commerce, you would see a lot of gold commerce on the street, right? It was not like only big institutions dealing with gold. It was everyone. And I think Bitcoin will eventually hit that, hit it that way, man. Okay. Like, Commerce on commerce on the road and even small to mid-sized businesses custodying custodying Bitcoin uh, with a very accessible multi-signature setups, right? And so, not like we're not talking. Look, look, look at it. You can you can already have a bank inside Venezuela with with eighty thousand dollars. I mean, are you consider are you considered a bank for the rest of the world if you only have eighty thousand dollars on your balance sheet? No but you are inside Venezuela. So eventually, yeah, like I, I agree. Everyone will be into Bitcoin. That will melt up everything. Everything will be based out of Bitcoin, be it directly or indirectly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, for the next at least five to 10 years, John, I think that banks will, will go nowhere. They will continue being there. Some might, some will disappear, right? Because some banks are already bankrupt, man. Okay, with the whole interest rate apartheid, and then their businesses are structured in a way that they even have to charge you for phone calls sometimes. So you figure that out. I mean, right. if you can, I mean, if you can buy a, a Skype phone number for a dollar a month, but you have to pay UBS Switzerland sometimes or traditional. Uh, banking institutions from Switzerland, you have to pay them like $10 for a phone call. What the heck is that? Mm. I mean, so if, if the, if you perceive there to be a, 
a pretty big benefit of having a quote unquote bank, you know, banking license in Venezuela. Why not hop on that now? What's the, what are you waiting for? Uh, okay. I'm ready. I'm, uh, I'm waiting for the Maduro regime either reach a sort of agreement with the U S treasury and the U S government. Okay. Beat with uh, the next U S president, uh, which I think is going to be Trump uh, or eventually Trump will crack Maduro's ass. <laughs> okay. And, and that will be the road, right timing because you will have uh, not only international investors, but also local investors willing more to invest inside Venezuela and Venezuelan based projects. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. That, that's why I'm not betting on that right now. And because if it's, it's a banking license and if, if you only get a banking license and with a banking license, you won't be able to deal with cryptocurrencies. I don't see much value on that right. because you will, you will only be able to provide traditional financial services and financial products. And um, yeah. Like so get, so getting both is harder to get a, a cryptocurrency license and a banking license is much harder. I mean, I will be able to do so as El Sultan Bitcoin because I know both both sides of the <laughs> uh, of the ecosystem. But, but uh, will is is it like really? Uh, uh, is it a benefit for me? I don't think so. I I don't think so because I would start have to dealing with with the U.S. Treasury a lot eventually. more oversight. Yeah. Yes, I could get sanctioned by doing that. I could get sanctioned. Right. Right. Um, general question, this is way off topic, but just over the last few years watching things happen in Venezuela, I'm just curious, you know, uh, Guaido has been, you know, traveling around the world and, you know, uh, you know, as the kind of uh, the, the people's leader of Venezuela that everyone wants and that most governments are um, supporting. What is the, you know, the reality on the ground of, of how much people support Maduro versus Guaido and that dynamic? Okay, so poor people support Maduro because Maduro gives them food from time to time, some people, and they've psychologically, psychologically already been brainwashed, okay? Because when you destroy an economy and people have no means to educate themselves, right? I mean, right? TV is controlled, media is controlled. So in that regard, like Maduro, Maduro is stronger. And I, I see Guaido as a bit of a bluff, to be honest, John, a bit of a bluff. Uh, it's always been like that historically inside Venezuela. And I think pretty much all over the world, right? I mean, we're talking about politicians, politicians. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, puppets. Puppets, literally. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I don't know, man. I, I'll, I, I want to give you an excellent insight, okay? Maduro is buying gas, okay? Gasoline from Iran using gold with a gold mine that the Maduro family has for themselves inside uh, Bolivar, like the Venezuelan Amazon. Um, and then he pays directly the Iranian regime with that, uh, like, w with that gold, which is dirty gold literally it's it's dirty and it's we dirty thinking, because it's damaging the environment or because they stole it you mean Both. it's stole 
So we get gasoline from Iran, which is sanctioned by the US, mm. okay? Uh, using like uh, sort of a narco gold, because uh -huh. it's, it's narco gold, literally. And then we, we get gasoline inside PDVSA gas stations throughout all, like nationwide inside Venezuela. That's the only, of course, uh, oil refined products provider inside Venezuela. But although Maduro is sanctioned and PDVSA is sanctioned and Iran is sanctioned and we are using Nautical Gold to buy the gas, we can use our JP Morgan Chase or Bank of America debit card to pay for that gasoline. Is that fair? Is that hypocrite? Sounds like it. Is that hypocrite? <laughs> it's a little bit hypocrite, man. Yeah, okay. seems like it to me. But we live in a hypocrite, hypocrite world of course. Ran, by, ran by puppets. And the only solution to repeal that is Bitcoin. <laughs> 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 I mean, look, like I, I was discussing this with CK, John, on the FedWatch Bitcoin Magazine podcast the other week. Like mm -hmm. regarding Bitcoin, if it's going to fulfill its promise and its value proposal for the globe and our daily lives, eventually everyone, every sort of human being must be able to use it, right? be it politicians, be it, profit, be, be it teachers, be it tech savvy people, be it people from Wall Street, be it bankers, everyone. And so Bitcoin is just a pool. And when you get inside that pool, you, you have to just like learn and enjoy a couple of drinks with other dudes that are already inside the pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. That's what this is all about, really. There, there, there's no Bitcoin Baywatch team that is going to get you outside of the pool, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, once you're in, you're, you're in for good. You're in um, for good. Dude, what, how, like, how come you're not more concerned about speaking so openly about your opinions about the regime, what's going on, all this kind of stuff? Like, it, there's, you don't have any concern for whether it be, you know, you personally or your business be, getting more flack if, you're, if your opinions are heard at, by the, the wrong people? Like, how do you, how are you so open? Yeah, um, I know a lot of people here. <laughs> I know a lot of people here, man, really. Like the people that really rule the country, I know them all. Like at, for, at a private level, like from the industry and, uh, and of course from the government. I know the president himself. I shook hands with the president. I don't care. I mean, it's my president. If, if he's sanctioned, I'm, I'm not doing business with Maduro whatsoever. I'm not helping him. Right. He's okay. He's, he's okay. So you're... Uh, if I don't get scared, it's because I, I took the time to sort of structure what I was supposed to say throughout these different Bitcoin shows, uh -huh. right? So uh, just like CK said on the Bitcoin magazine, it's like you would literally have to listen to all of the Elso Time Bitcoin podcasts in a row to sort of grasp the reality and yeah, all of right. the insights. So are, are, are your, you know, kind of class of people a little bit untouchable in Venezuela, like just because of the economic clout that you carry or the integration, you know, are, is that part of it? Because you mentioned, you know, you know, the right people and you should like, you said critical things. Are you just kind of a lot, you know, you know what I'm saying? You're smiling. <laughs> I'm allowed, man. I'm allowed. I'm allowed. <laughs> 
<laughs> I asked for permission and, and, I, and I'm not required to have a license to speak about this. <laughs> right, right, right. All right, all right. Um, uh, last question, man, before I, I know you got your birthday party, so I'm gonna let you go and enjoy your day. But um, what, like when you speak to people, you know, your friends in Venezuela, your family members and this stuff, like as Bitcoiners, we seem to be the ones that like, the light bulb comes on and we're fully orange pilled and we're just like, Oh my God. Like, and, yeah. but, but we tend to see it maybe a little bit earlier than others. How have your, over the course of your Bitcoin journey, how have your family, friends, et cetera, uh, reacted, responded, interpreted this, you know, you know, this obsession that you have with Bitcoin. So at first it was like, stop, stop Alessandro. <laughs> <laughs> quit it already. But then, you know, eventually when you see someone just insisting and insisting and insisting and insisting and insisting and insisting and insisting, it's like, okay, there must be something behind this. Bitcoin is not a scam. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like it took me so long, man, to like convince my grandparents that I was not ruining my family's finances <laughs> by investing everything in a Bitcoin. And then, of course, my friends. But right now, like, John, I have to be honest. What I have to say is thank you, man. Thank you, dude. Because what you have done, what Brady did, Stefan Rivera, CK, Max Geiser, etc., Vlad Kostea, it's like bump up my trustworthy image regarding Bitcoin inside the community and the ecosystem. And so people say, like, huh, Alessandro is part of that community in a way. And so if he's part of that community, he's not bullshitting people. <laughs> Taking it that way. Yeah, but, nice. Yeah, because look, uh, Venezuela got so fucked up, dude, that you literally have to trust no one. No one. And before it was not that way. And I can tell you like 10 years ago, it was like, you can trust, well, let's not say you can trust everyone, but everyone will just help out so much each other, you know, because we, we could do so. We could do so at a per capita level. Now it's like, can we re really help each other? So difficult, man. People right. don't have time. People don't have time. Everyone's in a rush, dude. Okay, like, what are you buying and reselling here and buying on this part and reselling on this side of the world, uh, uh, this side of Venezuela? But yeah, uh, right now it's just cool. I'm, I'm enjoying it so much, man. Like the also the Bitcoin image and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can tell. I can tell. Uh, so uh, family and friends have been, some of them have been converted to hodlers, I'm assuming, over, of the, over the years. Of, like, uh, like, of course. I mean, I even had some friends that were already into Bitcoin and then eventually got burned on, uh, during the 2017 bubble. And then they were like, I hate Bitcoin. I was like, no, hate yourself. <laughs> <laughs> hate yourself for not educating yourself more, dude. But you see, that, that's a huge problem, education, because most of the uh, important Bitcoin knowledge is in English. Right. And so if you're not sort of a English native speak or speaker or, or an advanced English, or if you have an advanced English level, you might have a bigger entry level barrier, right? Regarding yeah. Bitcoin understanding, yeah. Totally. Um, all right, brother, last part. I, uh, I haven't been doing this too often lately, but I, I definitely want to do it with you. So at the end of some of the podcasts, I go through a list of words. Uh, so it's a word association thing. I say the word, you tell me the first thing that pops into your head. You down? Cool. 
Cool. All right, let's do it. Democracy. Wow. Uh, bullshit. <laughs> the light, the Lightning Network. Uh, overrated. Ooh, government. Puppets. Human rights. Puppets. Violence. Necessary. Trump. Mm, uh, Ge uh, Gemini. Gemini, which is his zodiac, uh, zodiac sign. <laughs> did I just hear, did I hear say, someone say happy birthday to you? Yeah. Oh, shit. All right. I got to let mother. you go. Yeah, okay. E we're almost done. Ego. Uh, ego. I would say Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I expected that one. FOMO. FOMO. Mm, I don't know. Ethereum. Wealth. Bitcoin. Privacy. Bitcoin. Hate speech. Ethereum. <laughs> Gold. Uh, go old. Mm. The Grace Go Bitcoin Investment Trust because it reminded me of the gold commercial that gold is old. <laughs> Guns. Far West. Revolution. Venezuela. <laughs> Socialism. China. Family. Wow. Peace. Inequality. Fiat. Hell. Regulations. <laughs> Liberty. <laughs> Proof of work. Energy. Tesla. Bitcoin. Love. Brother, this has been uh, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day on your birthday to have a chat with me. I'm gonna let you go enjoy yourself now. Uh, any last words before we sign off? Thank you very much. Follow me on Twitter, El Sultan Bitcoin. Follow me on Instagram because sometimes I post some excellent stories on my Instagram, El Sultan Bitcoin as well. And you can find me on LinkedIn as El Sultan Bitcoin as well, Alessandro Cicchetti. Thank you very much, John. Amazing, brother. Take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon. I'm, I'm going to pop up the champagne today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do it, man. Enjoy yourself. See you See later, you, brother. brother. Happy birthday. Thanks, man.